0: Welcome to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm AF Taneth, and today I'm covering Umbrella Academy, Season 3, Episode 1. Umbrella Academy is back, baby. Now, I'm a recent fan of the show. In fact, I got into this within the past year. I think it was maybe December or January when I watched Seasons 1 and 2 for the first time. And I do actually have reaction videos up for those. So if you're interested in watching, those are available to $5 patrons, as will be all of my reaction videos for this season as well. And I'm really happy that I didn't have to wait years or whatever for the next season of the show to come out. I found out season 3 was on the way not terribly long after I finished watching season 2 for the first time, and I've been eagerly awaiting its drop ever since. And today, as of recording is the day episode one titled meet the family finds our story picking up where it last left off the umbrella academy siblings are back home to confront their inexplicably resurrected father only to find that this is not the umbrella academy he's technically not their father anymore and he's essentially replaced them with seven other superpowered kids including ben who here has grown into a very different person than he did when our familiar hargreaves were his siblings now before we move into the actual events of this episode i want to take a minute to reflect on what this must mean in the original universe it said that Reginald sought out the inexplicable newborns and quote got 7 In this universe, he specifically avoided the original six children that visited him last season, picked up one, Ben, that he did get in the original universe but who he never met in the 60s, and then sought out six more until he once again had seven. In the original timeline, I had assumed that he stopped at seven children because he could only find seven children. That he has once again stopped at seven though, well, I think that points to something else entirely. I think that indicates that he intended to get seven specifically. Why, I have no idea. Narratively, it serves the purpose of creating foils and parallelism between our original Hargreaves and our new Hargreaves. But in-universe, why stop at seven twice? There's no way that's a coincidence. Surely it has to mean something. In any case, I want to say one more thing before I move on. For this episode of the podcast, and potentially more episodes to come, I'm going to be referring to Elliot Page's character as Vanya Hargreaves. I suspect, of course, that Vanya will be coming out as transmasculine at some point in this season, as I know Netflix put out an introducing Victor Hargreaves tweet at some earlier point this year, but as Vanya has not yet clarified her gender or changed her name, I will be referring to her for now as Vanya and with she-her pronouns. If and when she comes out, of course, I will obviously no longer use that name or those pronouns for the character. But because Vanya has not yet come out, and because there's still a small possibility that Victor Hargreaves could strictly be Vanya Hargreaves' doppelganger, and maybe the two don't share a gender identity, I will be sticking to Vanya and she-her until the character tells me otherwise. With that said, Let's get into this properly. The opening of this is fucking terrifying to me, if I'm being honest. We find two unnamed young people in Seoul, and their interaction is almost identical to the Russian couple from season one. They're playfully sexual but far from actual sex, the boy makes a move, the girl seems to reject it, and then the girl gives him a kiss anyway. It's playful, it's innocent, and yet it somehow spells doom. I'm going to be honest here, what happened to these women is the single worst thing I can imagine. I'd literally rather be eaten by a bear than go through with what happens to them. Like, I personally am acutely terrified of the state of my country right now because I know that if someone impregnated me and I were unable to get an abortion, I would simply kill myself. Not might. Not could. Would. I would kill myself because unlike many, if not most women, I do not view pregnancy, childbirth, or motherhood as something miraculous or empowering or even tolerable. Pregnancy is body horror. Period. And if I were ever in the situation where I was faced with no choice but to suffer that horror, I would genuinely rather die. So these poor girls? It's a literal, actual nightmare that they're living through. An innocent kiss one second, bloated and bleeding and screaming the next, with strangers staring at your genitals in shock and horror as you give birth to something that you have no idea where it came from or how it got there or what the hell you're supposed to do now. Add on to that the fact that no one would believe your story anyway, and I don't know how any of these girls made it out of this experience alive, to be perfectly honest. Assuming that they did. Seriously, if you think I'm joking, you need only look so far as the TLC show I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant for confirmation otherwise. That show is all about unlucky and unfortunate women who, thanks to extreme circumstances lining up in just the perfect way to fool them, had no idea they were having a baby until they were literally in labor. And the reaction to this show is almost always sheer disbelief. No one believes these women. These cases are extremes. They are the perfect storm of misfortune, an alignment of factors including small fetuses, little weight gain, barely noticeable baby bumps, a lack of fetal movement, irregular periods, and misdiagnoses or miseducation about infertility. These are not dumb women, and they're not liars, but go visit any YouTube video of the show or any article about it, and you will find people of all genders, races, and ages shitting all over these women because clearly it's impossible for what happened to them to have happened to them. I will tell you right now, if this shit happened in the real world, no one would believe these girls. It would be denounced as a conspiracy, a hoax, a bunch of sluts trying to pretend they weren't whoring around, or maybe a bunch of gold diggers who got together for a creative new way to try to get men on the hook for child support. No one would believe these girls, and if I were among these women, I would be in denial myself, to be perfectly honest. If what happened to these women ever happened to me, like I said, my brain would simply break. I would not be able to hold in my consciousness the reality of something so horrific happening to me, and I would spend the rest of my life in extreme denial. It was a dream. It didn't happen. I was making things up. And if you somehow managed to convince me otherwise, again, I would just kill myself. I guess I'm just saying that I don't really think the show dwells enough on the extreme horror story that serves as the fundamental building block upon which the rest of the entire show is built. And I hope that we rectify that this season. Because again, this is the most horrifying thing that I can imagine. There is no horror worse than this, for me. And if we ever find out for sure who did this to these poor girls, I had better see that motherfucker ripped limb from literal limb. Especially, especially if Reginald himself is somehow behind it. I want to see that man destroyed. Anyway... This poor girl has a baby she never created, voiced upon her by some kind of a sparkly light. And just as I assume that the baby from season one was Vanya, I assume that this baby is Ben. Because in Waltz's Reginald in the very next scene, the very picture of human evil. He's honestly a caricature. He's literally like a goddamn lizard alien person in a white man human suit. He's got the British accent as a gesture toward imperialism. He's a billionaire as a gesture toward toxic capitalism. And he marches into this Korean family's home like he owns the place, poking the baby and demanding to buy it. I want to see his goddamn eyeballs ripped out, you guys. Anything short of agony will be too merciful for this man. But from here we get a first look at our sparrows number one is marcus who is inhumanly strong and agile number three is Faye, who makes up for her disability by seeing through the eyes of magical crows and who presumably would have a lot to talk about with bran stark number two is our old friend ben whose presence effectively distracted me from the inexplicable number seven aka christopher who is a literal floating cube of some kind meaning that some poor teenager somewhere got magically raped into delivering a sentient motherfucking box And here's hoping she survived. Number six is Jamie, who has kind of a Anne Hathaway meets Kristen Ritter thing going on, but wishes she had a fraction of the charisma of Jessica Jones. Number four is Alfonso, who has a facial difference of some kind that I assume must be genetic rather than accidental given what we see of his powers later. And number five is Sloane, who has anti-gravity powers. Now, when the umbrellas meet the sparrows, things do not go well. Let's not mince words here, everyone acts like a bunch of idiots. Ben is shitty for no reason, Diego is shitty for no reason, and everyone would rather try to beat each other to shit than actually try to talk about this. And in the basement, a yellow swirly light manifests inexplicably. What is it? I don't yet know though I suspect it's some side-effect of the Umbrella siblings being here. And when I say here, maybe that's as specific as the Academy itself, or maybe it's as general as this very timeline. I simply don't know, but I'm absolutely positive that whatever this thing is, it is definitely a threat. Perhaps it's a threat tied to the Temps Commission? It does, after all, appear to specifically target Number 1 for destruction at the end of this episode, so perhaps it's trying to correct things in some capacity. But it also killed that little dog, though, so maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Whatever's happening downstairs, though. What's happening upstairs is an issue. Reginald explicitly lies to the Sparrows, he's carefully choosing his words to make it sound like the Umbrella siblings are delusional, threatening, and potentially villainous, and I will be interested to find out his motivation here, especially when one considers his attitude in this scene compared to his attitude in the later scene with the Sparrows alone, though I will get into that later. Regardless of Reginald's bullshit, though, is the host of other more frustrating bullshit that's happening here. A small honorable mention goes to Luther's obvious sexual or romantic interest in Sloane. Here's the thing. Sloane was adopted by Reginald Hargreaves. Luther was adopted by Reginald Hargreaves. It doesn't really matter that they weren't raised together, they call the same man their father. That makes them siblings, which means Luther is once again romantically pursuing his sister. Someone help this broken idiot. Anyway. Beyond Luther's personal problems, there is the rest of this nonsense. Everyone is unnecessarily combative for the obvious, doilist reason and no good Watsonian one. The show clearly needs the protagonist to start off this season in an underdog position, which means they need to get their asses kicked. Which means that they not only need to collectively hold the idiot ball long enough to not explain themselves, but also to bumble around like a bunch of dumb fucks when they should have been able to at least hold their own against the sparrows. Like, why am I expected to believe that the sparrows are so much better than them? It's not even that the sparrows outmatch them here. They don't even break a damn sweat doing it. They are nonchalant, smug, and over. and I can only imagine that I am supposed to be left with this sour taste in my mouth over the whole thing. I can only assume that they're being written so frustratingly, because they're going to be written out one by one over the course of the season, and that I am not supposed to be bummed out by their deaths. But like, You made the characters I actually like a bunch of idiots to try to get me to that point, and that doesn't really make me pissed at the sparrows so much as it makes me pissed at the writers. Like, I can see the scaffolding here. Just instead, have the umbrellas bail on this scene instead of acting like combative clowns who get beat down. This just feels wholly unwarranted. Maybe I'll change my mind once I see the rest of the season, of course, but that's where I'm at right now. As for Jamie's powers and the vision that she makes Diego see, I just, I just cringed fully out of my body. It's pretty easy to clock very early on in that scene that we're not legitimately doing an end of Guardians of the Galaxy kind of thing here, but that does nothing to reduce the extreme amount of secondhand embarrassment that I was suffering trying to watch that shit. And then there's Grace mom is back, except apparently the Sparrows do not see her as their mom, and also she's glitchy as shit, and wasn't she only invented in the first place so that Reginald could keep Vanya in check? Why is Grace here? Why does she seem to already be at the end of her rope right from the jump? And why, when she finds that weird shit in the basement, does she also appear to suddenly find religion? It's wild. But the worst part of it all, of course, is the part that everyone agrees is the worst part. While this whole mess is going on, Grace disappears with the goddamn briefcase. Those things just won't sit the fuck still, will they? You take your eyes off them for a second, and they're gone. Now, after it's all over, and all of our favorites have been beaten black, blue, and bloody, the umbrellas gather in the park for a recoup. They're only now realizing that the timeline has changed, and I'm honestly not sure why they're being so goddamn dumb in this episode, but okay. From there, we go to the basement to watch Grace discover her strange new deity and then we're off to who knows where to find an old man packing a suitcase. The name on the suitcase reads Lester Pocket, but I'm very willing to bet that this is actually Harlan all grown up. The signs are there, this guy clearly has powers, the train scene is incredibly indicative of neurodivergence, and whatever the hell is up with that thing in the basement really reminds me of Vanya's powers at their absolute craziest, which means that Harlan might know something important given what happened between him and Vanya's powers in the last season. But we've no confirmation on that front yet, so I suppose we will see. He could turn out to be someone else, I suppose. As the siblings wander through the park, they realize that everyone is staring at them, and it only gets worse when Klaus takes them to what he claims is a kind of opulent meets shady hotel. Literally everyone there has eyes only for them, and I don't know what to make of it. If it were just the hotel scene, I would put these fuckers down as, like, I don't know, a bunch of Illuminati lizard people in the same vein as Reginald, but given that everyone in the park was acting sus as fuck too... Between you and me, I think there's something terribly wrong in this timeline. Allison, though, does not yet appear to have realized what precisely is wrong about this timeline specifically for her. Again, everyone is being incredibly stupid in this episode, woefully unable to even attempt putting two and two together for some reason. I'm sure it's to set up a heartbreaking reveal later in the season, but it just makes no sense for no one to realize it yet. If Allison was never adopted by Reginald in this world, then she was never Allison Hargreaves, which means she never married what's-his-name to conceive Claire. After pretty much forgetting all about her daughter last season, Allison is now desperate to get back into contact with her, in spite of the fact that she should instead be desperate to prove to herself that changing the timeline didn't erase Claire from existence and equal parts devastated and furious that it obviously did. But I guess that's an issue for another episode. Right now, we're checking into the hotel, and the guy at the desk is Death from Supernatural, and between you and me, this is an enormous step down. Get this guy better acting roles, please, I beg. He's great, and I would love to see him get more to do in some sci-fi, fantasy, or horror property. But anyway, the siblings end up paying for their rooms with Luther's watch, which I guess must be a fancy brand or some shit, because Klaus's pile of condoms are not going to cut it. Back to the Sparrows. They are as annoying as ever, but Christopher's idea of exercising is hilarious to me, and while I cannot stand Ben's new personality, he is very nice to look at. Moving on. Reginald arrives at the little home gym, having apparently been summoned by Number One, which I'm very willing to believe is straight up bullshit. I am sure Number One doesn't know it, no, but Reginald is definitely up to something. Everything about this scene is constructed to make it look like the sparrows are in charge of Reginald in this timeline rather than the other way around. But I'd sooner believe that this whole episode was just me having a fever dream than I would believe that Reginald fucking Hargreaves is honestly being submissive here. This, I will remind you all, is the dude who literally offed himself in order to manipulate his first batch of children. There is no way in hell that he has decided to just roll over for his second. But that brings me to my primary question for this season. What the hell is Reginald actually up to? He's conning the Sparrows, that much is clear, and he's playing a very long game, but to what end? Who, in the long run, does his plan benefit? Because I have a sneaking suspicion that when he argues in favor of the Umbrella Academy siblings and their world-saving antics in this scene, he's not just saying that. Personally, I think he's pitting them all against each other for a reason, and I have a sneaking suspicion that this might just be his wacky-ass attempt to whip the Umbrella Academy into shape. And won't that be a slap in the face for the sparrows when they find out? Honestly, I hope I'm right, just because they're so damn annoying this episode that I really look forward to the moment when I hopefully get to see them realize they're not shit. But back to the umbrellas. Everyone is settled into their rooms, and Allison heads out to track down Claire and her ex, and Vanya, though we don't know it yet, heads out to meet up with Marcus, unless not all is what it seems there. The talk with Marcus itself is worrying. Now I talked some in my reaction video about Vanya specifically in this scene, so I will sum up my thoughts here, vague as they are. I don't know that I buy Vanya's actions in this scene. She feels a very slight bit out of character for me here. Perhaps it's just that I got used to her personality in Season 2, which was very different from her personality in Season 1, thanks to the between-seasons amnesia. But the Vanya who would go to Marcus specifically to have this conversation is not a Vanya that I recognize. I have no problem with Vanya as a negotiator. That has been built up from Episode 1 of the whole show. She is fundamentally a peacekeeping character. She tries to avoid and avert conflict. She tries to use her words instead of her powers. But having the confidence to go behind everyone's back to negotiate with an apparent enemy... Well, it surprises me enough that I had to have a huge debate with myself over whether or not I really believe it. I honestly don't think I do fully buy it, but I don't hate it as a new direction for her character, so I suppose why not? Let's go. Besides, if you can get past the twinge of out of character here, it's a really badass threat that she delivers, especially since Marcus is uniquely infuriating among the Sparrows. Ben is the one that really hurts, sure, and Faye and Jamie are the ones most unreasonably combative, but Marcus cements himself in this scene for me as especially dangerous. There's a 1984 thing going on here with the Sparrows which is made abundantly clear by the enormous We're Watching You banners throughout the city, but listen to the language that Marcus uses in this scene. He acts like being empowered crime fighters is a game, like it's some kind of celebrity career or a business of some kind. And he uses dehumanizing language very inherent to modern violent police ideologies like the aptly aimed killology, which is taught to officers all over the country specifically to convince them that killing is, quote, just not that big of a deal and that it will improve their sex lives. No, that's not a joke. I'm going to leave my sources in the description and prepare to be incredibly furious as you read and watch them. So, when I say that I don't like Marcus, I mean I really don't like Marcus. The writers don't want me to, they are using specific language used specifically by abusive and murderous institutions within our society in order to code him as villainous. And then, they kill him at the end of the episode. And that's why I'm quite confident that the Umbrellas picked a fight and lost with the Sparrows, specifically so that the audience would not be upset when the Sparrows die this season. Because this scene with Marcus and his apparent death later in this episode are a tiny, tiny version of that. They're setting them up so that we won't feel bad about it when they get knocked down. And if any of them are going to avoid suffering the same fate as Marcus, I'm willing to bet that the only survivors are going to be maybe Ben, maybe Sloane, and maybe Christopher. Because how the hell do you kill a cube? In any case, the scene with Vanya and Marcus concludes with Vanya trying to negotiate for the briefcase, or so I assume, but not without the watchful raven eyes of Faye looking on. She and Ben are spying, and they're clearly perfectly willing to undermine Marcus to get what they want. So much for being number one. Back at the mysterious hotel, Five is breaking the obvious news to his brothers. This is an alternate timeline. In this version of reality, they were not taken from their birth mothers by Reginald, which means that the real versions of them are likely out there somewhere now, minding their own business and living non-Academy lives all across the globe. And given what last season taught us about interaction between timey-wimey doppelgangers, Well, running into those alternate selves is going to get messy if and when it happens, and I think it's almost a guarantee that it will, especially with that shot of Luther trying to figure out if Klaus is right about how he would quote, climb Luther Mountain if given a chance. Anyway, before we dwell too long on the notion of problematic doppelgangers, we get something even worse. Problematic offspring. Supposedly. Cause here's the thing, I doubt that we're supposed to doubt Lila. Maybe we are, it's not like she's trustworthy, but I don't see how complicating the narrative with a fake kid is a good move in terms of writing decisions. Er, at least, I don't see it yet. So maybe this isn't really his kid, and maybe I'm supposed to know that it isn't, or maybe I'm supposed to be completely taken in only to be shocked by the eventual reveal that I've been fooled. But if I am supposed to be completely taken in by this and not find anything strange at all, well there's a very slight issue with that and i'm gonna try to put this as carefully and respectfully as possible lila is a brown-skinned south asian woman diego is a brown-skinned latino man their apparent son stanley is a white-skinned latino boy who might even be paler than me in person now hold on to your horses don't get ahead of yourself I know. In reality, this isn't even all that uncommon. People have kids that come out with weird genetics all the time. Sometimes mixed-race kids will end up looking like their grandparents more than their parents. It's not unreasonable or unrealistic for these two characters to have had this kid. But here's the thing. Reality is not a defense for fiction. If you're having trouble understanding this concept, which I originally heard best explained by author Lani Diane Rich of the Chipperish Podcast Network, I will leave a link to a relevant essay in the show notes that should be able to explain it to you. But the gist of it is this. Reality operates under an extremely, extraordinarily, incomprehensibly complex set of rules. Fiction, on the other hand, operates under a much simpler system. Modern fiction adheres to story structure, and coherent story structure does not allow for defenses no stronger than, but it could happen in reality. Stories are not reality, fundamentally. There is a reason that stranger than fiction is a common phrase. If reality is unbelievable, you get over it. It's simply reality. If fiction is unbelievable, though, well, that's much harder to get over. Fiction has to adhere to story structure, or at least modern stories have to adhere to modern story structure. So when I say that reality is not a defense for fiction, I don't even mean to say that casting this particular pale Latino as a brown Latino's son is egregiously unbelievable. All I'm saying is that it's a weird choice, a tiny little chip in my willing suspension of disbelief. And on top of that, given modern conversations about colorism and casting, it's also kind of weird for this kid to have gotten this role. Like maybe it will turn out that he's a phenomenal actor, I don't know. But right now, having only just seen him standing next to his two brown-skinned parents, it just feels like a strange choice. And so instead of wondering what's going to happen next in the story, I find myself fixating on the actor. Why was he chosen? What does his casting specifically mean for the story? What does the metatext mean for the actual text here? Should I be suspicious? Should I not be suspicious? His presence takes me out of the narrative. I find myself looking at metatextual aspects of the story, and I don't particularly love that. But let's move on. Lila has arrived to drop off her son, Stanley, with his supposed father. Diego, of course, thinks this is a joke, but apparently Lila has been raising this kid alone for 12 years off-screen, and now it's Diego's turn. And if there's anyone in the Umbrella Academy who I wouldn't trust raising a child... Well, actually, I don't know that I would trust anyone in the Umbrella Academy with raising a child. Maybe Vanya. Maybe. From there, we move back to the Academy in question. Marcus walks in on Grace in the basement where she's drawing symbols on the floor in chalk. When asked what she's doing, she says she's worshipping, and that is very ominous indeed. Because the symbols she's drawing are a hodgepodge of Illuminati-adjacent symbols that risk the show stepping into extremely unsavory territory. Among more ubiquitous symbols like a cross, a triangle, and a star, a cursory glance also reveals the Masonic square and compass, various iterations of the all-seeing eye, two stars of David a pentagram, and more that I recognize but don't know the names of. It is Illuminati nonsense all the way down, and trying to swim in those waters risks being bitten by the shark of your own unfortunate implications. The elites of the world are lizard people is an anti-Semitic dog whistle, regardless of whatever David Icke says. And I just really need this show to be careful with whatever the hell it's trying to do here, because this shit could go really wrong really quickly. For now, though, it has not. We don't know what Grace means when she says that she's worshipping this energy blob. We know that she thinks it's speaking, but we don't know what she thinks it is, and we don't know why she's drawing symbols in front of it. Nor do we understand why, when it suddenly bursts forth in a surge of energy very reminiscent of Vanya's powers, she is wholly unconcerned with the apparent death of Marcus right in front of her face. Not to mention a dog across town, though of course she doesn't know about that. And that brings me to, I believe, my ultimate theory, or perhaps my vain hopes for this season. As I said, the effect of this energy blob is very reminiscent of Vanya's powers, except that Vanya's powers are all force, and this wave of energy apparently disintegrated at least one man and at least one dog without anyone else really noticing anything? How? How is that possible? And perhaps even more importantly, why? Marcus, I understand, he was being a dipshit, and he was trying to touch this thing. But the dog... The dog is a complete mystery to me. The dog is an enormous complication. I simply do not understand the death of the dog. So here's my theory. It's a working theory based off very little, and regretfully it has very little if anything to do with the dog itself. But an old man who I think is almost certainly Harlan is on the road, traveling presumably toward our main cast, and this energy blob has a CGI effect very similar to Vanya's bursts of power. Powers that Vanya somehow inexplicably transferred to Harlan last season and, when they were removed, left behind powers of his own. So my theory right now is that this blob, whatever it is, is the source of all these children's powers. Maybe it's an entity, maybe it's a tear in the space-time continuum, maybe it's a portal to another dimension or world or whatever. But whatever it is, I think it's closely tied with the source of these miraculous babies and their powers, and I think that of all the children, Vanya is most closely related to it. Her powers are the most similar, and Harlan, having briefly had her powers 50 years ago, knows something big about what's going on. I think. And, to that end, I wouldn't be surprised if Reginald too knows more than he's letting on. Hell, maybe this thing is even the thing that destroyed his world. Maybe he came to Earth specifically because this thing was coming here next. Maybe he tracked down the babies because people with this thing's powers are the only chance of stopping it and saving the world from it, or something like that. Because that would certainly tie into my theory about Reginald using the sparrows to sharpen up the umbrellas, wouldn't it? So yeah... I'm in heavy tinfoil mode right now and I'm really excited to watch the next episode and I'm really excited to see how far off the mark I may or may not be with all of my tinfoil theorizing. Whatever else happens this season, from cringe dance numbers to annoying sparrows and their deaths, I'm at the very least thrilled by the prospect of getting answers to these mysteries. These little mysteries look like they're going to be very, very fun. So, with all of that said, if you are interested in my reaction videos for this season, those are, once again, available to $5 patrons. If you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching after this season of Umbrella Academy and the final two episodes of Stranger Things Season 4, then you're going to want to head to my Patreon, where for $1 and any tier above that, you are going to get access to the polls determining what it is that I am going to watch. And if you are not interested in any of the Patreon tiers, you may be interested in leaving a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice. That would be very much appreciated. And if you are not interested in any of that, no hard feelings. I understand. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you join me again next week. And as always, I am so excited to see what happens next in this show.